Well, good morning. So would you open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 17 as we continue our series on what Jesus, uh, or upon this rock. And the second message uh, was last week, what Jesus wants his church to be, and this is part two of that. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you have a plan and that your plan includes us that you have written our names in your book of life. Thank you that you have given to us eternal life, as many as believe in your name for salvation. Now, Father, as we discover more and more of what you want us to be as your people, what you are building on this earth in terms of your kingdom, the church, I pray, Lord, that you'd break down those preconceived ideas that all of us have and be the people you want us to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the heart of our nation, in the Midwest, was a small town. This small town had three churches. A Presbyterian church, a Methodist church, and a Baptist church. Three different congregations, three small congregations, all of them had the same problem. There were squirrels in the church. I don't mean squirrely people. I mean literal squirrels in the church. They had gotten into the rafters. They were in the walls. They infested the church. So each congregation had its own meeting on how to deal with these squirrels. What do we do with them? How do we solve the problem? The Presbyterians got together and they decided... The squirrels were predestined to be in that church and the people were just going to have to learn to live with them. So they really didn't solve the problem. The squirrels were there to stay. The Methodists decided that they would deal lovingly with the squirrels in the spirit of John and Charles Wesley. And so they trapped humanely, gently trapped the squirrels in cages, took them to the edge of town to a park and released them. Uh, Within three days, the squirrels were back. The Baptists had the most uh, innovative idea of all. They solved the problem. They decided that they would vote all of the squirrels in as members and baptize them. And uh, they only see them now on Christmas and Easter. How about that? (laughs) We all suffer from concepts of what the church is to be, what the church is to do, how the church is to act. The wrong concept most people have is that the church is a place where people meet rather than a group of people that gather at a place. And by the way, that's more than just semantics. There is a big difference. Because if we start seeing the church as a place where people meet, then we're going to always be looking for the right kind of place that suits us. But if we start seeing the church as a group of people selected out of the world by Christ, then we're going to be evaluating what kind of people are we to become for the glory of God. It's not a place. It is a group of people. But as people, we must be not only believers but belongers. We belong to a group of people growing together. 
One of the exciting things for me, though, I do miss the church family I've been a part of for 23 years. It's hard to leave a family when you've uh, built relationships and uh, dedicated the children and watched them grow up and married them and buried uh, some of their relatives. It's hard to leave that kind of a family. But it's exciting to come somewhere else and now integrate and weave our lives with new lives and build a new family and see how other people uh, grow and learn and live. It's an exciting prospect. But my encouragement to all of us is that we are committed to grow together as God's people, as a family. That we're not just believers, but we're belongers together. There was a, uh, uh, a New York businessman. He was uh, visiting um, another city. He was, I think, in Chicago. And uh, he was returning home from dinner to his hotel, and he noticed a sign that said Chinese Laundry. He kept a mental note of that because he had a whole bunch of laundry in his hotel room needed to get cleaned. The next day, he brought bags of clothes, walked into that establishment, and put them up on the counter. And the attendant looked at him like, what is this? And he asked him, what are you doing? The man said, this is my laundry. I've always heard that Chinese laundries are amazing, and I saw your sign, Chinese Laundry. I need my laundry done. The man said, this isn't a laundromat. This is a sign shop. You saw the sign, Chinese Laundry, but look around. There's other signs also on the wall and in the window. Now, the church can do the same thing. We can send out false signals sometimes to people. We we have a sign that we're a church, or we have a sign, the cross, but people bring in their dirty laundry, their broken lives, and so often we're ill-equipped to deal with the soiled lives that come in, the dirty laundry, the baggage, the background. But that's what we're called to do, to belong to each other because we send out the sign, come. And we expect people then to come and be taken care of. So what is the purpose of the church? What does Jesus want his church to be? We started that last week in John 17, and today we'll finish this up, all in the series of Upon This Rock, as Jesus said, I will build my church. We discovered, and we'll go over them and and zero in on the last two today, four things Jesus prays for in John 17 that he wants you and I to become as the church. Number one, the church should radiate the glory of God. Should radiate the glory of God. That is, we are ever pointing to God, ever pointing to Jesus. It's not about us, we say, it's about him. It's as if we're taking and opening up the curtains of the stage and shining the lights on him and saying it's about him, it's about him, it's about him, a relationship with him, love for him, obedience to him. That's our first priority, to radiate the glory of God. Our second thing that Jesus prayed the church ought to do and be is the church should reveal the truth of God. Jesus said, I have given them your word. I have manifested your word. He gave them the words, Jesus said, that the Father had given to him. So as we gather, as we meet, we're always centering what we do around the revelation of Jesus Christ through the word of God. Now there's two more things, and we're going to look at those this morning, that the church ought to do, ought to be, ought to become. Number three The church needs to rescue the enemies of God and the church should rally around the love of God. 
Let's look at the first one and go to our text in John 17 and look at verse 14. Jesus continues this prayer. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. You see, we're sent. We have a job to do. We are on a mission from God, a rescue operation. The church is is not to become a bless me club. It's not, it's not a place where we come and, and we feel good and we get pampered, though I think we should feel good when we gather together with God's people. And God does love to lavish His grace upon us. But we exist in this world not just to radiate God's glory, not just to reveal His truth, but also to rescue His enemies, those who are at enmity with God because of their sin. Somebody once said, the church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. I like that. We exist for the benefit of non-members. Jesus even taught his 12 disciples not to focus on themselves. But he said, lift up your eyes and notice that the harvest is white. In other words, they're ready to be picked. They're ready to be rescued. I sometimes think about that verse when I'm Uh, in a mall, and I see hundreds or thousands of people. They're they're waiting to be rescued. The harvest is white uh, unto gleaning, picking. Or um, when I drive on the freeways and see all of those people, and it's easy to get annoyed, and we think, what are they doing on my road? I've got to go somewhere. They're on it. Lift up your eyes and notice. Or the Thursday night as people were pouring into that arena and I knew that just in a few moments they would be facing a very important decision about eternity. They were ready to be rescued. But so often churches turn inward rather than outward. It becomes all about us. It becomes all about our comfort rather than the the needy world. Jesus said to his disciples, go into all the world. We have sort of changed that mandate into a come instead of a go. Jesus said, go ye. We tell the world, come ye. Come find me. And I'll tell you the truth rather than going out to them. I believe that there's a healthy pattern of Christian growth. Saved, serving, sent. I think that's a normal and healthy pattern for any Christian. We get saved, we're excited, we enjoy the benefits of salvation. It's great to get into the Word. It's great to meet new people and discover all the love God has for us and what He's going to do for us. But after a while, we become a little bit bored with just having somebody feed us all the time. We now want to discover our gifts and get involved in our local church and and serve in some capacity. We want to give out. But then there's a third element to that. We see the world around us and we go, you know, they, they need this too. They need the family too. They need to belong as well. They need salvation. And that takes us out because we discover our Father has a bigger plan than just for us. One author put it this way. Christian maturity 
is being a responsible son or daughter of God. It's, uh, I, I think the mature in Christ are people who have stopped being concerned about their own needs and pursuits and have entered into the global vision of their father so that they transform a hurting world to accomplish the aims of the Lord's prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. It's like a son who's being brought into the family business. Instead of racing fast cars and running around with girls, he finally buckles down and says, Dad, I'm a part of it now. It's my business too, and I'm going to work hard and undertake the burden of this work. So, the church is called to rescue the enemies of God. Father, as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. Question, how do we do it? How do we go about rescuing people who are at odds with God? Three ways, and I'm going to show it to you in this text. By knowing something, by growing in something, and then by going. Knowing, growing, and going. We have to know something first. We have to know our position in Christ. Second, we have to be growing in preparation. And then third, we have to be going out, fulfilling the mandate. Go with me to verse 16. They are not of the world. Notice the wording. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. So he says, we're not of it, but we're sent into it. That's the relationship we need to know. We need to know our position with the world. We're in it, but not of it. Now, when you see the term world here, and so often in the scriptures, it doesn't mean the earth, uh, the environment. It doesn't mean even the people on the earth as much as a system, a mentality, a way of thinking. The Greek word is cosmos, and it means an ordered system of ideals and energy controlled by the devil. The Bible calls Satan the God of this world who has blinded the minds of those who believe not. So the world is this ordered system of ideologies that is against God, against God's purposes. Now here's something about the world. The world can appear to be very intellectual, very sophisticated, very alluring, uh, very religious, and at the same time, anti-God, anti-Christ, and they're not too crazy about you either as his followers. So we're in it, but we're not of it. Now go to verse 3 and notice the relationship with Jesus Christ to the world. This is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Now, Jesus Christ saw the world as a stopping off point in which to do his father's work, and then he was out of here. So he was on this earth in the world, but not of it, because he was sent to do a specific task. I've finished the work you've given me to do. It's the same with us. Why is it? if we know this world is so temporary that we become so occupied with it. You know what it's like? Imagine if we were in a transit lounge of an airport. We're only going to be there two hours. We're switching flights. 
and we spend all of our energies redecorating the airport bathroom. Somebody would see you and go, why are you doing this? You're only going to be here for a little while and, and you're out of here. Oh, I know, but, but I, want my, I want my bathroom here at the airport to be really nice. But it's lame idea. Dwight L. Moody used to say that the church reminded him of firemen straightening out pictures on a wall of a burning house. Look at verse 14. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. It's sort of like an astronaut. An astronaut in outer space. Outer space is not his element. He needs a suit to survive in it because that's not his environment, his element. He's not of it. In order for him to survive, he has to have equipment. Or like a scuba diver, the water isn't his element. He needs special equipment in order to survive. So unless we know our position with this world, in it and not of it, we're going to drown. We're going to drown. You know why? Because in verse 14, read on, the world has hated them because they are not of the world. An occupational hazard of following Jesus Christ is that they're going to treat you based on their view of God. If they don't like God and you represent Him, they're not going to like you. It's an occupational hazard of following Christ. So knowing will help us rescue them. Growing is the second one. Growing in our preparation. That takes us to verse 17. Sanctify them or set them apart. Make them holy. Sanctify them by your truth, your word, is truth. Not only must we be knowing our position in the world, we have to be prepared and equipped to handle that. And that comes through the Word of God. Peter said, As newborn babies crave or desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Question. Why so much emphasis on the Bible? Why so much emphasis on the Word of God? Why is this a prerequisite to spiritual growth. Here's why. To swim in a sea of worldly temptation, you need your scuba gear. Because it's not your element, for you to survive, you need the right scuba gear. You need the right equipment so that you can make it, get through it, survive in it. The pressure to conform from the outside must be counteracted by pressure to resist from the inside. If not, you'll fall to it. So we're, we're constantly pressured by the world, Romans 2.12 tells us, to conform to it. So we need a great pressure from the inside, i.e. the Holy Spirit living within us, in order to resist it. There was a letter that was written to a, uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine who's a pastor of a, a church here in Southern California up in the Los Angeles area. And it was written uh, from a radio listener who was looking for Bible study helps and Bible uh, study cassettes of this guy's sermons. But, But listen to his request for help. Please send me some ammunition, he writes. The battle lines are drawn. The trenches are being dug. And I'm not one of those to be caught shamefaced when our commanding officer returns. When the record is being reviewed, I want it written that the soldier in question, namely me, after repeatedly disobeying orders and going AWOL during wartime alert, finally donned his armor, 
reported back to his commanding officer, fought courageously and fearlessly without batting an eye, hit the enemy with everything he could get his hands on, and inflicted heavy damage in strategic areas to the credit of his patient, forgiving, loving, commanding officer. There's a phrase there that applies to us. I want it to be said that he took everything he could get his hands on to inflict damage on the enemy. My encouragement to all of us is to be knowing our position in the world, be growing in preparation for that by grabbing a hold of everything we can get our hands on spiritually to grow so that we can be equipped. And then third, going. Knowing, growing, and then going. Verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Can you see that the purpose for our knowing and the purpose for our growing is so that we can not just be sitting, but going into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature? The last words before Jesus ascended, or some of the last words, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature. Question, what has been the church's response to that mandate, go into all the world? I'm going to give you five. And and you fit into one of these categories. Sometimes we want to isolate ourselves. We want to isolate ourselves. There's a whole movement thousand years ago called the monastic movement. Let's build monasteries. Let's hide away from the world. They're bad. We're good. The only way to stay good is to be isolated. That's not the solution. A second response isn't to isolate, but to insulate ourselves, to insulate ourselves. The world's bad. I've got to protect myself. I have to work and I have to live in it. But what I'm going to do is point my finger at all the bad things and all the bad people. That's my job. I stay insulated at it. The Pharisees did it that way. You remember the Pharisees really weren't evangelists, were they? Uh, They never went out and worked hard to get people to believe in God. What they did is they held their robes close to themselves. They felt better than everybody else. And they got down on other people. Even Jesus they got down on. Saying, look, he's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Because he hung out with worldly people. So it's not to isolate. It's not to insulate. There's a third response Christian people have. Vegetate. Vegetate. I live in a bad world, and who cares? They become apathetic about it. They live only for their personal comfort. Let people go to hell, they say. Who cares? It's their choice. That's vegetate. There's a fourth response. To imitate the world. And here's the thinking. The only way to survive in this world and get people to come to Christ is to be like the world so they think I'm cool and hep as they are. And then I can attract them to Christ. And what happens is the Christian then compromises and goes to a lower level. The fifth response is the best response, to permeate the world, to go out into it filled with the Holy Spirit of God filled with the gospel of God, not to be like the world, not to be indifferent to the world, but to go out and permeate the world. Jesus said, Father, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but I pray that you keep them from the evil one. We're called to rescue souls. The salt must be poured out of the salt shaker. 
or we do no good. Here we are, the salt shaker. We've gathered together. We're getting saltier every time we get together. What good does it do if from time to time we don't do this? Out in the world. Empty the salt shaker. Get out there and preach the gospel. A little quip was sent to me. I'm going to share it with you. Live churches are constantly changing. Dead churches don't have to. Live churches have lots of noisy kids. Dead churches are fairly quiet. Live churches' expenses always exceed their income. Dead churches take in more than they've ever dreamed of spending. Live churches are constantly improving for the future. Dead churches worship their past. Live churches focus on people. Dead churches focus on programs. Live churches dream great dreams for God. Dead churches relive nightmares. Live churches don't have can't in their vocabulary. Dead churches have nothing but. Live churches evangelize. Dead churches fossilize. Now, before we move on and close this off with that final point that God wants us to be, not only does the world need you, but you need the world. Now, I've got a few puzzled looks right now. No, 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 Skip, you don't understand. That's the one thing I don't need is the world around me. That's the source of all my problems is there's these crazy, pagan, worldly people around me. I don't need the world. Yes, you do. The world needs you, but you need the world. Because as you are in the Word and in the world, you make a difference and it helps you stay on the edge. Let, let, Let me tell you a little story. Years ago, uh, when they tried to take uh, the New England codfish and ship it to different parts of America, especially out here in the West, they didn't know exactly how they were going to accomplish that so that the fish would stay fresh. So their first plan was to freeze it and send it out. And they thawed it, cooked it, and they noticed that the flavor wasn't the same. Frozen fish, thawed out, isn't as flavorful as fresh fish. So they decided... The second thing they would do is send out the codfish in tanks of seawater. They sent them out here, but the texture was mushy, wasn't firm like the fresh fish. So their third tact was to put inside the tank the natural enemy of the codfish, the catfish. Now you can imagine, the entire journey from the east coast to the west coast, that little codfish was being chased around the tank by the enemy which kept it fresh, firm, flavorful. (laughs) That codfish needed its enemy around him to keep it strong, healthy, and fresh. Now, there is coming a day when Jesus will take you out of the world at the rapture of the church, or if you die before that event, you'll be in heaven with him. You'll be out of the world. But until then, you and I need the hassle. We do. Because otherwise, we become frozen Christians, the chosen frozen, right? Many are called, but most are frozen. We become cold and austere. Or if mushy, we're just, all we, we're just around Christians all day long. Isn't this great? No, it's not. We need the world around us to keep us where I believe God wants us to be. So... God wants us to radiate the glory of God, reveal the truth of God, rescue the enemies of God. And fourth and finally, we'll close with this this morning. He wants us to rally around the love of God. To rally around the love of God. This is the final prayer uh, or part of Jesus' prayer beginning in verse 20. It's the most exciting, by the way. 
I do not pray for these alone. Look at that in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone. Who are these? The disciples. So I'm not just praying for my 12 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Who would that be? You, me, us. Doesn't this tickle you? Jesus Christ prayed for you. Now, don't you love it when somebody says, I've been praying for you lately? Oh, thank you. But Jesus has been praying for you lately. The Bible says he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He is at the right hand of the throne of God, his Father, talking to the Father about you, praying for you. I pray for all those who will believe in me through their name. What does he pray for? That they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Now that's a mouthful. But let me distill it into this sentence. He is praying for unity among Christians based upon love and truth. Unity among Christians based upon love and truth. And by the way, he prays for that four times in this prayer. What does that mean, unity in the church? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean uh, ecumenical unity necessarily. It doesn't mean, as some people erroneously think, that we can get together, drop all denominational walls, all get in one big huge building and develop one ecumenical super church where we just all agree on everything. First of all, ain't going to happen. If two people agree on everything, one of them isn't thinking. That's just life. Uh, As I read my Bible, I understand that the 12 apostles had arguments as to who would be the greatest. I see that Paul and Peter had arguments about the law in Galatia, that the Jerusalem council and others were divided over the issue of grace and salvation, that Paul and Barnabas even had a dispute that caused them to be broken up, seemingly irreconcilably so, that they parted directions, and yet God used it. So when we speak about unity, it doesn't mean that we'll agree on every single point or every single method. It doesn't mean uniformity either. It doesn't mean that we're all going to carry uh, the same version of the Bible and vote exactly the same way, and our outlook is always going to be the same. Uh, In any family, there are individuals, um, kids, and they're your kids, but uh, number one is very different than number two and number three. Their personalities are different. And in the church of Jesus Christ, there are some who are premillennial, some who are amillennial, some who are pre-tribulation in their view of the rapture, some are post-toasties in their view of the rapture. So there's all sorts of these different views all in the body of Christ. What does he mean when he prays that we would all be one and united? I'll tell you exactly what he means. Verse 8. 
I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them. They have known surely that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name, those that you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. In other words, the unity is to be based on the revelation of who Jesus Christ is to us. In other words, I'm a Christian the same way you're a Christian. I'm a Christian because I put my faith in the one God sent, Jesus Christ. You're a Christian because you put your faith in the one God sent, Jesus Christ. And that's enough to keep us together as brothers and sisters. Yeah, but we don't agree on all things. So what? That's good. That's healthy. St. Augustine said, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. So that's the unity he prays for. And why does he do it? Verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. Listen carefully. Our unity, our unity, proves the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel. Think of what the world sees when the world looks at a divided church. I'll tell you exactly what the world sees. I don't want to be a part of that. I can turn on a soap opera and see that. I can get that in the world. I want to see people who love each other, who are devoted to each other. A poll was taken asking people, why don't you go to church? Here's the results. 49% said because the church is not effective in helping people find meaning in life. 56% said the church is too concerned about organizational issues rather than spiritual issues. We live before watchful eyes. They look at us and they look very carefully, do they not? So imagine what the world thinks when a church in Salem, Virginia took two of their members, the Richardsons, Harold and Pauline. He was 82, she was 74, and charged them with trespassing last February. They came to church and they were told that they couldn't vote on church business because they had been away from the church for eight months. They were sick for eight months. They just got their health back. They were coming to the church. And now the church was going to call the police and arrest them for trespassing, brother and sister in Christ. So it reminds me of the prayer that the little kid said as he was tucking himself in bed at night. He said, Lord, it was Sunday night. Thank you for this day, for this weekend. Church was a lot of fun today. I had a great time but I wish you'd have been there. 